Thank you, worship team. Good to be with you today. Thank you for the fine introduction. I was here a year ago, and I, I told my wife, Sue, what a great bunch of students you were and what a great place this was. So I'd like you to meet Sue. Wave, please. There we go. We are here until Friday morning, and we're here to serve you. We're with ABW Canada, working in Israel uh, for over 20 years and in uh, Eastern Europe also. And we really want to serve you. And especially for the young ladies, I suggest you avail yourself of talking to Sue. Sue was raised in a Roman Catholic family, went through a Catholic school system, came to faith as a young adult, and has worked in church planting in the Middle East for many years. And she also is involved in writing curriculum for training new missionaries. She lectures at three different universities in Israel also. And we're going to be involved in two classes tomorrow with many of you. So we're looking forward to that. It almost seems like Satan hindered us in getting here. Uh, We came off of the Trans-Canada Highway and pulled out the memo about the detour. And I thought, guys, quit joking around, you know, turn onto the dirt road, come on. You know, but it was true. It was true. And then this morning we got up at the Strauss house and tried to look out the window and we thought, that's cool, like they frosted the glass. That's pretty cool. And then we realized you have fog here. We don't have fog in Israel. You know, so uh, don't worry about us. But we were kind of like uh, stumbling around from building to building here this morning until we found you, but we're together. And that's what matters. Here we are. You know, people say, well, how can you work in Israel? It's like so dangerous. Now, come on. I mean, look at all the stuff that happened to Paul. You know, I haven't been through all that yet. It's okay. You know, in Jerusalem, beside us, we have, we have Israelis living. And on the other side, we have Palestinians. You know, it's so nice when neighbors live just a stone's throw away from each other. Don't you think? <laughs> Finally, we woke up. Okay, that's what it takes. Okay. Uh, I wrote a book. I'm donating it to your library, no kidding, I autographed it, that raises the value like 5%. Um, I believe in Christian Zionism, Christian Zionism, if you know what it means. And uh, this book traces the history of Christian Zionism, what it's all about, and how it is a valid political stance. Uh, Stephen Harper has a copy, Benjamin Netanyahu, uh, John Baird. You should too. Order from Amazon, I get $2. It's great. That's not a joke. That's real. (laughs) At the back, we have our prayer card, picture of us. Our email's on the back, myself and Sue's. We want to be your friends. We want to be resources to you. We think that we know things that may help you. We may be able to plug you into academic institutions in Israel where you could earn a master's degree in Hebrew or archaeology or Old Testament. Uh, we can help do things like that for you. So you think, I, some of you, you're waking up, I can see. So we can do that for you. If you're involved, if you want to be involved in world evangelism, we can talk to you about that. Let's look at Psalm 127. This fantastic psalm. Unless the Lord builds the house. I hope that, that you are looking to the God of heaven for everything in your life. I want to be here with you these days, and I want to bring Sue, and Sue wants to be here with you. Why? Because you love the Bible. 
you love the word of God and there's nothing more important or valuable in your life than pouring yourself into the scriptures and making friends like this, people and the word of God. What else in this world could be more important? You know, in my office, I have on the shelf at eye level a full, complete, excellent condition set of the 1911 11th edition Encyclopedia Britannica. 29 volumes. It fills a shelf. It was called in its day The Sum of Human Knowledge. It's fantastic. Except that a hundred years later, it is mostly irrelevant, inaccurate, and non usable. But the Word of God, much, much older, is absolutely relevant and powerful life-changing and usable because it's inspired. It is the Word of God. As we look at this psalm, I want to ask you, what do you want to accomplish in your life? And how much do you think depends on you and how much depends on God? Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is vain for you to rise up early, to sit up late, to eat the bread of sorrows, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. Happy is the man who has his quiver full of them. They shall not be ashamed, but shall speak with their enemies in the gate. You know, in Israel, people have built buildings for thousands of years and walls and castles and they guarded them. But as you travel around Israel, you know what you see? Most of these buildings and walls and castles are crumbled down ruins. So much of what we devote ourselves to comes to nothing in the end. But for you, here are in this psalm, this sweet little psalm, five things in your life that the Lord is looking after. This psalm is a little different from others. It wasn't written by David. It was written by King Solomon. First of all, the Lord is looking after your dreams. Unless the Lord build a house, they labor in vain that build it. You know, if you look at the way God made us, the way we think, we were made to do things, to build things, to accomplish things. And this is good. And I know that you have dreams. What are your dreams? The wise believer understands that everything he does is from the hand of God. I grew up on a fruit farm and I saw the neighbors around us with their farms. And we had on the farm next to ours a family that were atheists. And in those days in southern Ontario, everybody I knew went to church. Society's changed a great deal over these years. But that family did not go to church. They worked seven days a week. They were very proud of that. And they said, don't talk to me about God. We don't believe in that. And they became very wealthy. And I saw the older couple in the family. They built up on Ridge Road a beautiful retirement home. It was the biggest house in the area. Very, very nice house. But then... The man got sick. Then his wife got sick. And then they went into 
a nursing home early. And I saw one day the sun put boards over all the windows. The house was boarded up for all of my high school experience. And it made me really think. These people, they built something totally without thinking about God. And it's as if God just blocked it on them. And it was an incredible life lesson for me. Maybe you are a very busy person. Maybe you have a lot to do. Well, I have an idea. You could work harder and faster and longer, maybe. Or you can commit everything that you're doing to the Lord and trust Him to give you the time and energy to do what needs to be done. And I believe that God will honor that commitment. Commit everything to Him first and He will give you the resources to finish the rest. Secondly, the Lord is looking after your security. I don't know about you, but I've got so many passwords going on, I don't even remember half of them anymore. In ABWE, we work with a team that works in Israel and all over Eastern Europe. And can you believe it? We have a full-time security director. He's a retired police chief. He's in our area all the time. He has a doctorate in mission security. And he teaches us a lot. He sent me a memo just last week about renewed security issues in Israel. So we are aware of these things. We devote ourselves to these things. But over it all, we know that the God of heaven looks after us. In Israel, you would not have an apartment or a house without bars on the windows. If you want to insure your car, you need three independent security systems working on that car. It seems here in New Brunswick, I don't know, you know, I feel like I can just walk into places and, and people don't have that mindset. But in the Middle East, it is no place for the weak. There's very little mercy. And so we have security. Even two of our church vans in Jerusalem have been stolen, disappeared, gone. I once was friends with a bank manager here in Canada and she told me that she has customers that phone her every day just asking that everything's okay over there. You know, worry can really weigh us down. I hope you don't devote too much time to it because most of the things we worry about never actually come true at all. So just let it go. Jesus said, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. The fact that you're here, part of this institution means that you've got a lot of your values in the right place. Jesus said, don't build up treasure on earth where thieves break in and steal, but your treasure in heaven. Jesus never said, if you will become my follower, no one will ever steal from you and nothing will ever go wrong. We live in a fallen world. I would say that most of our missionary colleagues have been robbed and have had their items, their possessions stolen at one time or another. There was a time a few years ago in Brazil where every single one of our missionaries in Brazil had been robbed at gunpoint. Because we live in a fallen world, it's going to happen. But we put all of our hope and trust in the Lord. ABWE now has a whole entire branch we call WIN. Sometimes called Winning Islamic Nations or World in Need. Where they are embedded in Muslim countries. Where they live with great danger. And yet we go. And I am of the opinion that when we see a troubled spot in the world, we shouldn't be pulling our missionaries out. We should be sending people in. Send them in. 
because if we die in the service of the gospel or if we're hurt in any way, then great is our reward. And if we go in and we accomplish great things for the kingdom of God and we survive it, then great is our reward. So what have we to be afraid of? If we live by faith, we trust God for our security. Thirdly, the Lord is looking after your accomplishments. It says in verse 2, It is vain for you to rise up early, to sit up late, to eat the bread of sorrows, for so he gives his beloved sleep. The word vain is, is shuv. It means empty. If we work hard at doing these things, we won't accomplish anything. And God is so omnipotent, God is so sovereign, that he even gives to us when we're sleeping. I know a young lady that works in a sleep laboratory. People can't sleep, it seems. And so people come to the sleep laboratory with their pillow, their pajamas, their teddy bear. They get all wired up. They sleep in a little laboratory room with cameras and wires on them. And then in the morning, they're told why you can't sleep. Because sleep is so important. I don't know why we need it, but we seem to need it. And I know some of you, you know, you're thinking about sleep right now. And some of you are on the verge of engaging in that activity. Sleep's a wonderful thing. God gives it to us. But know this, that God gives to us even when we're sleeping. And know this too, that there is no direct link between your efforts and your success. Because God is sovereign and God intervenes. Do you get the point of this? There is not a direct link between your efforts and your successes. The believer has that secret weapon, the secret weapon of the blessing of God. Every day, every, everything that you do, commit it to the Lord. When you wake up in the morning, say, Lord, this is your day, I commit it to you. When you enter into a relationship, a friendship, when you start a new course, when you start writing a new paper, uh, before you start writing the exam, well, that's a great time to pray for God's mercy. When you're, when you're engaged in something maybe even you don't feel that ready for, ask the Lord to, to bless it, to look after you. And then we do our work because God gives us the rest. It could very well be that King Solomon is writing something very personal here because it says that when he, it's written here that the Lord gives his beloved sleep. The Hebrew word is yadida. He gives to his yadida sleep. And if you go to 2 Samuel chapter 12 and verse 25, you see something very interesting. This little baby Solomon was born and they named him Shlomo or Solomon. But then God intervened and said, I call him yadida. God had a nickname his own personal name for this little baby, this little royal baby, Yadida. And that's the word that Solomon uses in this psalm. He's saying that God gives his beloved sleep. I think what he's saying is God gives me my sleep, my rest. If God had a special personal nickname for little baby Shlomo, think of this. Maybe God has a nickname for you. Do you believe in a personal God? You know, when we're doing evangelism in Israel, 
we look for common ground. We're working mostly with Israelis who are biblically literate, love the scriptures, love Israel, and yet they don't like the New Testament. They don't consider the New Testament to be valid scripture. And the point of contention always is Hanagar, the carpenter, that Yeshu, they won't even say his real name, Yeshua of Nazareth. Jesus and the cross, that is the point we do not have common ground. But we do have common ground in the issue of a personal God who loves us and cares about us. Something that I love about the Middle East is that people talk about God and prayer and scripture all the time. It is considered normal and healthy. It's considered very masculine. One of the reasons it's difficult here in the West to talk about God and scripture and prayer is that we have been so influenced in our society by humanistic thinking that it's considered weird or weak. Try it. Go to Tim Hortons tomorrow or go somewhere where you have people who don't believe as you do and talk about God in scripture and prayer. It's difficult. And why is it difficult? Not because you're afraid. Not because you're cowardly or you're weird. It's because it doesn't fit this ecosystem. But still, we see that obstacle and we persevere. Sleep can be a wonderful thing. In the book of Hebrews, the Lord uses rest as an illustration of salvation. Years ago, I knew a man who worked in the software business. He owned his own company. He developed special software for the medical profession. He constantly felt he was on the edge of making millions, right on the edge. And he had a nice wife and six children, and he was always working, 80, 90 hours a week, working, working. One day, he wanted to come to the church and meet with the pastors. So we we scheduled this meeting, and he met with the pastors. And he told us that somebody else had beaten him to the contract, meaning that all his years of work had come to nothing at all. And he said he wanted to confess to us as pastors that he had never really even prayed about it. He had just plunged in and worked and worked, and it was as if the Lord just blocked that. And he said when he realized he'd lost everything, it was like he woke up from a dream. And he said, I have to go home and get reacquainted with my wife and my children and start over again. On the fruit farm, I realized that the fruit grew even at night when we were snoring because God blesses that way. And when you fall asleep at night, here's a suggestion. Think about the thoughts of God. The end of Psalm 100, for example, the Lord is good. Thank you, Lord, you're good to me. His mercy is everlasting. Thank you, Lord, that your mercy will last forever in my life. His truth endures forever. Thank you, Lord, that your truth lasts forever. When I was a youth pastor, we had something called Word of Life Scholarships. And in the 80s, during those years, we had 40 different young people earn Word of Life Scholarships. But it was a tough sell to some parents. Church members, people I thought were committed, they would say to me, no, 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 no. No, my children are not going to spend all that time learning verses and doing Christian service. 
and reading those Christian books. I want them to do well in school so they'll do well at university and get a good job. And you know what? In most cases, they got just that. Those young people are now middle-aged, they went to university, they've had good jobs, and there they are. But of all the young people that did that spiritual work of learning 100 verses a year and reading five Christian books a year and doing 20 Christian service assignments a year, they have done very well. I can name among them doctors and pastors and missionaries and successful business people. And for the most part, to a very large extent, they have done very well in the eyes of God and in this world. It's a matter of trust. Who do you trust? Fourthly, the Lord is looking after your reward. Verse 3, we all like to be rewarded, don't we? I suppose you have awards here. I suppose you have scholarships, things like that. Let me urge you to never be competitive with your classmates. Never be competitive. Let that go by. You do what God wants you to do. They will do what God has for them because an evil one can work in that in huge ways because it doesn't really matter how you compare to others. The Lord doesn't reward us by making things easy, by giving us everything we ask for. The Lord rewards us by giving us things that will delight our hearts and he knows better than us what will delight our hearts. Children are an example here of a reward that God can give. It's a way that he chooses to bless. But you might think, well, what if somebody never gets married? What if people never have children? As I said, this is wisdom literature. It's an example. Children are an example of how God can bless. We have friends that are single, never got married, and they're very blessed. We have friends that got married, never had children. And they're very, very blessed. The Lord has for each one of us a unique path in life. And the rewards that God gives are very, very different. And we cannot compare. It's written here literally that the sons of youth, children of one's youth, are a great reward from God. And really the Hebrew is sons. Because 3,000 years ago in Eretz Israel, sons were considered to be more valuable than daughters. That was the ecosystem, the culture that this derived out of. And children were compared to arrows in the hand of a warrior. Well, let's talk for a moment about family. I like this illustration. So the parents are like the soldiers with the arrows shooting the arrows. This is the role of a parent, to launch the children into their lives. And soldiers, they're strong, they're focused, they engage the enemy. Children are like arrows. What's an arrow? It's a wooden stick with a point at one end and feathers on the other. So what's more important? I think the soldier shooting it than the actual arrow. The application is this. Children are not the center of the home. The Lord is. And in a family, the most important relationship is the marriage of the husband and the wife. And then the children come after that. I see children and teenagers like arrows that need to be developed and cultivated at the right time, launched. I think one of the best things to do with teenagers is to keep them scared out of their minds. Give them assignments that they cannot succeed at so that they will look to their parents, they will look to the Lord. Because if the parents don't keep the teenagers frightened to death, then they'll find some other way to be frightened to death. 
ways that will represent the darker side that will not perhaps please you or God. If you believe that God has a destiny for your children and teenagers, then launch them into that destiny. And I know you're not there yet. But sometimes it's better to talk about things hypothetically before you're embedded in them. You know, someday, when we're in eternity and we get to meet all the people that were in the Bible, you know, I I don't think I'm going to go rushing over to Paul and Peter. There's probably going to be a big lineup anyway. I want to go talk to Zebedee. Zebedee. He gave up his sons to follow Jesus. And I'd like to sit with him. He's probably going to be up there, you know, mending nets or something. And I'll ask him, so what was it like running the fishing business without your sons? And you'll probably say, well, it was really hard. But, you know, it was worth it. It was worth it. We prepared him for that, his mother, you know, their mother and I. And that's what they did. And I'm glad they did it. And lastly, the Lord is looking after your respect. Talks here, the end of this psalm, about the sons speaking with the enemy at the gate. You won't be ashamed. You know, in the Middle East, if you knock on someone's door of their house, you know who answers the door always? The children. Little, the littlest children. And then they'll yell, and then some older children might come. And then maybe after a while a wife might come. And then maybe, maybe, maybe the father will appear. He was there all the time. But he does not humiliate himself by answering the door. And in ancient times, if the enemy was at the gate, at the wall, it would be the strong young sons that would shout insults back and talk and negotiate. And the father would appear at the end of it all. Because that's what respect looks like. The Middle East has always been and still is a shame culture. Humiliation is the greatest fear in the Middle East, and it's to be avoided at all costs. David knew this constantly through the Psalms. David writes, don't let my enemies triumph over me, anything but that, Lord. When David was given a choice between some discipline, he said, I'll take the plague and I'll I'll take pestilence. Just don't let my enemies beat me, anything but that. The Lord knows this. And in the ecosystem culture that you're in here, you know the things that make for humiliation. And you can ask the Lord, Lord, don't let that happen to me. And the Lord will respect that and the Lord will give you that. So the conclusion of the matter is this. What would you like to accomplish in your life? What are your dreams? Only you know. But give them to the Lord. We went to Bible college with one young man and I shook my head over him and wondered, what, why is he here? What is he doing here? Then I realized near the end, one of his dreams was to plant churches all over, churches of thousands of people, and to be a really important guy. And 30 years later, you know what? He, his main church is, is over 10,000. He's planting churches all over. He's on the radio every day. And it's amazing. Only God did it. And at Bible college, I really thought he should go home. And others said so too. And God touched his life and gave him what he asked for. How much of your dreams depend on you and how much depend on God? Well, the simple answer is it all depends on God. And we're called to be faithful. First and always commit all your efforts to the Lord, knowing that your efforts will last for eternity if God blesses them. Our success can be 
cannot be assured on our own. We look for the touch of God to accomplish things in our lives, to give us security, to reward us, to bless us. Father in heaven, thank you for this scripture. Thank you for each student. I pray, Lord, that your blessing would be on them in a great way, that everything that they do, they would look to you first. Lord, I pray by faith in the name of Yeshua HaMashiach. Amen.